Hey, everybody, this is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman, back with you for the 160th, count them, 160 Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom calls. Uh, we have a ton to talk about today. Unfortunately, we're going to talk about, start with a really terrifying piece of work. Thousands, actually millions of fish uh, have washed up dead um, uh, in Japan and of course, the nuclear industry is claiming there's no connection between that and the uh, millions of pounds of radioactive tritium they're dumping into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, <laughs> of that, you know, I'm glad they have a sense of humor. Uh, and we're also going to talk with the great Carl Grossman, who has joined us uh, from Long Island, <clears throat> to talk to us about the fiasco at the COP28 gathering, where they're supposed to be talking about uh, saving the planet. And in fact, they have a chair who's talking about how um, uh, burning fossil fuels doesn't doesn't warm the earth. I mean, uh, again, another instance of a sixth sense of humor. Talk about a bit about the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant, the uh, and the uh, uh, transition to renewables that continues to speed up the, despite the best interests of the fossil nuclear industry to stop it from happening. Going to get a bit of an update from the great Wendy Lederman in Florida. On, on what's happening in Cop City. And then after 40 minutes past the hour, thereabouts, we're going to be joined by the great John Steiner and Camilla Reese, who talked to us a bit about fundraising, uh, how to do it, and how it plays into the future of these calls and uh, of the movement. Always something nobody wants to talk about, but uh, these are two of the great experts, and have, they have really very generously volunteered to, to deal with us on this. At the top of the hour, 6 o'clock Eastern Time, 3 o'clock Pacific, uh, we are going to talk with Ken uh, Stern and David Saltman, two experts on the Middle East. And Ken Stern is with the um, Bard College Center for the Study of Hate, uh, which we are certainly in need of at this point in time. Um, and it's going to be a very, very interesting hour. And that will be, again, our time, really our third session for people to chime in on uh, what's happening in the Middle East, uh, the ongoing horror show over there, and the incredibly complicated political, ethnic, religious uh, dynamic that has really overtaken so much of the dialogue here in the United States. So as usual, we got a full two hours. We want to celebrate uh, the legalization of marijuana in Ohio. I lived for decades in Ohio. And, you know, it was always illegal. And if any state ever needed marijuana, it's uh, it's Ohio. But uh, now it's legal there. And uh, <clears throat> they're playing games with it, of course, the legislature is. But the fact is that you can now walk down the street in Columbus, Ohio, and right up to the state house and the uh, statues of the seven Ohio presidents, including the greatest of them, uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And you can smoke a doobie right there. Is it right, Steve Caruso? Can you now... If you wanted to go walk on the steps. No, of- no, no, no. Stop <laughs> spreading misinformation. <laughs> oh, I guess I was, I, as as Bogey said, when he said that he went to Casablanca for the waters, I was misinformed. Is not that, is that not, not that, now? The you can't smoke in public because you, it's like secondhand smoke. They don't want everybody being exposed to it, especially kids and so forth. So we've got to keep it moderate. You know, we got to be civil about it. And, <laughs> 
you know, if you want to, if you want to pray, go into your closet and pray. Essentially, <laughs> so. <laughs> so you 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 can I so I misunderstand. You cannot walk around smoking a joint in Ohio. You have to uh, be in a private place. Yep, yep. You can't do it in public unless it's a sanctioned, <laughs> you know, parlor maybe or I mean, the smoke shops. Uh, you're allowed to smoke inside the smoke shops, and if they're selling, but right now they're just allowing the um, medical marijuana sellers to sell the legal pot. So you, wow. know, you, you can still grow six plants. I mean, they still haven't passed the legislation on it definitively yet, as far as I know as of this morning. But they're still the working on legislation. The well, now, the referendum did pass, but the, the legislature in Ohio is, you know, all hands on deck trying to obfuscate. They're adding a 5% tax on the things. Um, they're limiting the plant growth in a household to six instead of 12. It was six plants per person. Um, and they've got some other stipulations that they want to add. So we'll see. Uh -huh. so, yep. These guys are shameless. Well, here's the big question then. Can you go on the floor of the House of Representatives in Ohio and smoke a joint there. It is an enclosed space, right? No, no, it's, you know, that's public space. Can you take a gun into the state house? I don't know, maybe they want people with guns in the oh, state I'm house. Sure you they allow them on the front lawn anyway. I mean, if you can have a gun on the front lawn, what's worse, that or pot? I don't know. Well, the question is what's legal. So, um, <laughs> uh, all right. We also have a situation, an astonishing situation, which we need to mention very quickly. Uh, Wendy and I were talking about it before the uh, before the show, which is uh, um, the ability or non-ability to get an abortion um, in in Texas and elsewhere. As I think many have seen, uh, there's a woman in Texas who has a very badly deformed uh, fetus. And she has been given all sorts of medical uh, confirmation of this situation. And the attorney general of the state of Texas, a guy named Ken Paxson, who was recently impeached, although not uh, removed, um, has personally intervened to forbid this woman, to prevent this woman from having a, an abortion in Texas. Even though it is clearly a life-threatening situation for her, and the baby will not live. I mean, there's just no uh, 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 chance that this fetus will survive. And she is now, it's on the front page of the New York Times. It's pretty amazing when a, a single woman's uh, 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 deformed fetus winds up on the front page of the New York Times. But she is now uh, leaving Texas <laughs> to uh, 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 get an abortion somewhere else. It's astonishing. And uh, uh I do want to quickly welcome Ken Stern uh, from the uh, Bard College Center of Hate. Ken, it's great to have you with us. Uh, you're a first timer, and you will be presenting at six o'clock Eastern time. Um, you're going to open our discussion. It'll be our third roundtable discussion about the situation in the Middle East. But we're honored to have you with us, Ken. And as I say, you'll you'll open up at six o'clock uh, Eastern time. Uh, are you in the you're in the East right now, right? You in New York? Okay. Good to see you. Uh, so, at any rate, uh, there's also a situation we have um, in um, tech. What state were we talking about, Wendy, where a woman is being criminally prosecuted for um, having an abortion? What, what's that? What's that? 
It's, it's in Ohio where you just passed the amendment to legalize it. And a 33 year old black woman. And I just I feel like it's relevant to say that um, she had a miscarriage and um, and it happened abruptly. I guess it ended up in the toilet and she flushed it. I don't know what I would do in that situation. I don't know that any of us would. Ended oh. up. Oh, like investigating. Go ahead. What's that? You Thank were you. Um, oh, sorry. Um, so an investigator found out that there was a clogged toilet and found the stillborn fetus um, in the pipes and they investigated it and they scientifically determined it was stillborn. It did not like it was not viable before the birth canal. Her water didn't break and she will face a grand jury because she's being criminally charged with mistreatment of a corpse. Oh, my God. I don't, I don't even know what to say. You know, it gives me don't chills. Don't people They're... have anything better to do? Yeah. Okay. Um, um, well, enough of that. Thank you for that, Wendy. And uh, we, did, we did need to update that because this uh, Ohio did just pass a legalization of abortion amendment. So even apparently when when uh, a referendum passed, uh, uh, the law still comes down on people. I want to welcome uh, Lisa Matros. Hi, Lisa. Uh, good to see you. Uh, and uh, 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 Eric Lazarus, good to see you from New York. Uh, we're going to go now to uh, Carl Grossman on Long Island uh, for two major uh, discussions on nuclear issues. The first is uh, <laughs> this um, incredible, horrifying, uh, among the worst photographs I've ever seen on uh, uh, the front page of newspapers all over the world, uh, at least a million dead fish in northern Japan. Uh, following immediately on the after the uh, release of uh, millions of gallons of radioactive tritium into the ocean uh, at Fukushima. And of course, the nuclear industry saying there's no possible connection. Carl, you've been with the nuclear issue for many decades. Uh, what's your sense of this fish kill in, in Japan? Well, I, I just did a TV program. People could watch it. It's on envirovideo.com. The the true story of what's happened at the uh, Fukushima six plant nuclear site and uh, a focus, a special focus on uh, uh, the uh, well, it's, it's been going on now for a couple of months, the dumping of radioactive water from that site into the Pacific Ocean, massive amounts, millions and millions of gallons over several years. So, you know, just. In the wake of uh, the initial dumping, we have this uh, this huge fish scale, and a number of uh, pretty knowledgeable people are pointing to the uh, the dumping of these nuclear poisons with the uh, with the killing of the fish. Well, we do we we know that very shortly after the Fukushima accident, <coughs> with four reactors, and there is a film about it. Interesting, I believe it's on uh, Netflix or HBO. It's called The Days, D-A-Y-S. And it's about it's a dramatization of what happened inside the Fukushima plant during the disaster. And uh, of course, it takes its place alongside the HBO series, devastating HBO series on Chernobyl. And uh, we're now in the midst, and, and Carl has reviewed this film of uh, the film on uh, uh, Three Mile Island. It's called Radioactive, Cohen, The Women of Three Mile Island. And Carl has reviewed it 
wide, widely, and I'll have a review. Oh my God, look at that! I, you and people can't on the radio can't. I hope to God I'm never in a place like that. We're we're looking at the picture of the thousands of tons of dead sardines and mackerel that have washed ashore in northern Japan. And of course, the nuclear industry is saying there's no possible connection. When you see this film, Women of Three Mile Island, something's uh, sounds like a Geiger counter. Um, <clears throat> when you see the, the film, The Women of Three Mile Island by Heidi Hutner, uh, you see interviewed, it centers on four women, uh, at least one or two of them I talked to in 1980, 43 years ago, about what was happening at Three Mile Island. And there, the nuclear industry vehemently denied that any radiation from Three Mile Island could have caused anybody any harm. And now we see these women interviewed four decades later. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. And, and Carl uh, has went, seen this film, Women from, of Three Mile Island. Carl, what do you want to say about it? But it's, it's a, Frankly, it's a masterpiece. I mean, uh, both the film that I uh, did my TV program on, which was done by Philippe Carrillo, who was a, an astounding uh, director and uh, lives in Vanuatu in the Pacific and uh, uh, is very much affects uh, all the all the Pacific. And Heidi teaches at Stony Brook University and has been my friend for many years. And she's done a, uh, again, it's a masterpiece of the consequences of the uh, of the Three Mile Island disaster. Uh, I also, let me know, did a documentary on this is years ago, 1993, Mile Island Revisited. Okay, well, we're getting some bad feedback. Carl, is that you? I, don't I guess we're going to have to. Um, uh, uh, there's somebody on 213220. Sounds like a Geiger counter, but we're going to have to mute. There we go. Uh, all right, Carl, Carl, try again. Okay. Uh, I also did a. Uh, a documentary on Three Mile Island where I stand uh, in front of those it's two nukes there saying uh, the nuclear industry says no one died as a result of the accident. Uh, this is just a number of years after, a few years, after, relatively few years after uh, at that nuclear plant. Uh, don't tell that to the people. And I interview various people uh, in the community surrounding uh, next to Three Mile Island and uh, a disaster, as Fukushima has been a disaster. Uh, and the nuclear industry, uh, the nuclear uh, promoters in government, nevertheless, just keep pushing and pushing. Right. They keep saying their their line is that nobody died at Three Mile Island. I spent the worst 10 days of my life there in January of 1980. I stood across from the cooling towers in Middletown, Pennsylvania, and I held in my arms a, a dog that had been born with no eyes. Uh, you know, that's that's not an experience you want to duplicate. And uh, we, as uh, Carl and I both have interviewed these women who um, um, had to see their families decimated by radiation that the industry denied existed. So uh, let's go to, of course, the industry is now denying that any of these fish were harmed by the radiation releases at Fukushima. Kat Kramer is with us, uh, the, the great Kat Kramer, uh, who does a wonderful film festival. Uh, Kat, if you want to pipe in, you've said that uh, you're going to be showing 
Women of Three Mile Island at a film festival in LA. Um, uh, if you already, if you want to speak, yes, yeah. Hi, I have a little um, rough voice today. I'm planning to, you know, launch Heroes for Change film festival, which is basically an extension of Cat Kramer's films that change the world. So I'm dealing with all the issues and the nuclear issues and environmental and animal rights and climate, but it's all female focused films and primarily female filmmakers. And of course, Heidi's film is, you know, high on my radar as one to present. It's really ideal. And I agree it's a masterpiece. And um, it's an eco-feminist film as well. So it really fits perfectly. Yeah, it's, it is it is a great piece of work. Thank, so. you for, thank you for supporting it and for bringing it up. And uh, Philippe's movie is also very strong as well. They're both impactful. When is your when will you be showing uh, the women of Three Mile Island? I don't have the date yet, but it's um it would be around the time that that it's that she's going to um release the film. I think on um streaming during Women's History Month. And okay. I think March twenty eighth is a significant date. Yes, uh, that, so it would that, be around. I would like to do it on that date or or around that. Yeah, that's the time of the accident, March twenty eighth, nineteen seventy nine. Of course, it led us to the Muse uh, 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 Festival co concerts of Five Nights at Madison Square Garden in uh, 1979. Uh, so at least one good thing came out of it. Um, uh, and Kat, thank you for showing that. Let's let's switch now quickly to the COP28 fiasco um, in the in the Middle East. Uh, there was a gathering um, of uh, to discuss, I guess, the climate crisis. It was uh, a chaired by a sheik or a sultan or somebody from the um, oil industry who got in front of the world and said that there's no evidence that uh, burning fossil fuels has any impact uh, on the uh, on the environment. Carl Grossman, uh, you we have 50 people with us, by the way, Carl. You uh, studied this COP28 and wrote about it. Uh, can you give us uh, the blow by blow here? Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, well... Uh... It's called COP because it's Conference of the Parties, which are annual gatherings being held under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And it's uh, each year the, these folks sit around and uh, uh, talk about climate change, global warming. Uh, this time it was, uh, well, the president of this COP28 uh, one was the chief executive of uh, the state-owned uh, oil company in uh, uh, in the Emirates, uh, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And um, he, and this was nicely dug up uh, as the conference be began. It's going to end tomorrow, uh, not too soon. Uh, he, uh, the month before the conference, this is in November, in a online interview, spoke about how... Um, uh, that if if you phase out fossil fuels, you'll have to you'll take the world back into caves. So this is a guy who's uh, you know obviously not accepting what uh, what scientists all over the world for decades now have determined as the chief cause of of global warming, climate change, and that's the burning of fossil fuels. So he have a person with a very special vested interest running this uh, this UN conference 
And then coming along was a a grouping of uh, led by the United States, a grouping of um, uh, of, of nations declaring that we must triple the number of nuclear power plants in the world to deal with climate change. There's 440 nukes in the world today. So we do the arithmetic, it'll be well over a thousand. My story and my my article ran on a lot of websites, op-ed news, uh, Nation of Change. Originally I I broke it in Counterpunch, uh, the free press and so forth. And my article begins, U.S. leads coalition to triple nuclear power by 2050 in an effort to address climate change. And uh, uh, and there I, I was quoting the, the lead of a CNBC article, uh, and the CNBC piece went on. The U.S. and more than 20 other countries pledged to triple nuclear power. The declaration is the most concrete step taken by major nations to place nuclear power at the center of the push to transition to clean energy. Uh, my piece then goes on, uh, quoting various people, including Harvey Wasserman, as saying this is beyond insane. Uh, Mark Jacobson, Dr. Mark Jacobson of Stanford University, the Atmosphere Energy Program there, uh, wrote a tremendous book or, published earlier this year, No Miracles Needed, How Today's Technology can save our climate and clean our air. He he described uh, this this uh, uh, statement, this declaration, uh, as the stupidest policy proposal I've ever seen. And then getting to the, the issue, because, I mean, it's not new, the baloney that nuclear power can somehow be an antidote to climate change is just such baloney. Uh, it's not carbon-free. Uh it's it's carbon intensive, the nuclear fuel cycle, particularly the mining, the enrichment, the fabrication of nuclear fuel, and also nuclear plants themselves emit carbon. Carbon fourteen, a radioactive form of of, of carbon, and a uh, this is kind of the good news. A, a, a four heads, uh, former heads of nuclear re- regulation in the U.S. Uh, Germany, France, uh, the U.S. Jeff uh, Greg Jasko, former NRC Nuclear Regulatory Commission chairman, and um, uh, the former Secretary of uh, uh, the U.K.'s Radiation Protection Committee, <clears throat> they earlier issued a statement saying nuclear is just not part of any feasible strategy that could counter climate change, and they detailed. Uh, all this stuff, um, uh, risky, yeah, too costly, uh, too slow, not suitable, inherently risky. And I'm just reading here from my article, uh, cascading accidents and so forth and so on. So this was the the scene at this COP28 conference in recent weeks. So how you can have a conference, a global conference on uh, the disaster <laughs> of climate change and then come out of it recommending that we burn more fossil fuel and build no, new nuclear plants, uh, I think reflects the state of uh, the mindset of uh, much of the world. Ray McClendon is on with us. Uh, Ray, have, are you still there? <clears throat> Georgia has just, uh, I think Ray uh, left us. Georgia is now in the middle of uh, 
uh, trying to deal with the two new nuclear plants. There, uh, well, one came online and one is uh, about to come online, allegedly, although it may not. Uh, two new nuclear plants in Georgia that are over $35 billion. And I don't know what people are expecting for the future of the economy in Georgia, but uh, they are in deep trouble. And we did have previously on our Zoom call uh, the a woman who's running for the uh, P Public Utilities Commission in Georgia, where they're going to try to decide how to who's going to pay for this. And uh, it's literally insane. $35 billion will be easily enough to uh, put that state, state into a deep financial hole for decades to come. And so the idea that we could triple nuclear power in this world uh, at a time when we're seeing massive fish kilns at Fukushima and other financial problems is, is mind-boggling. We also want to raise up, and maybe Tataka Bricka, you can talk about this. Uh, the issue of Diablo Canyon in California is becoming uh, uh, magnified by a, a reality that I think people are going to have to face pretty soon, which is that um, it, it, there is an increasing likelihood, as far as I'm concerned, that Gavin Newsom um, uh, may become president of the United States. Um, I, you know, uh, I, we can interpret it however we want, but Joe Biden has recently put out what I think can only be trial balloons about the possibility that he may not run again. Uh, when, when a president, incumbent president, says things like, well, any of 50 people could beat Donald Trump, to me that states that maybe his wife is telling him it's time to hang up the, uh, the spurs here. And at this point in time, and again, we are nonpartisan, and this is pure speculation, but there is only one uh, Democrat who stepped forward to uh, provide himself with any kind of profile to run for the White House, and that would be Gavin Newsom. And, uh, uh, you know, there are many things that would recommend him as a candidate. Among others, he's tall. <laughs> I've met him. He's very tall. He's at least 6'3". And uh, in the 20th century, uh, the taller, we've mentioned this before, in the 20th century, the taller candidate won every presidential election. That's not true in the 21st, but, um, you know, whatever the case, and uh, Gavin Newsom is on the presidential stage, uh, stage and he is um, uh, making a decision in California to keep these two reactors open at Diablo Canyon that's catastrophic. And uh, has really divided the state and uh, even threatened uh, California's booming solar energy in, in industry. Tataka, you're here in the middle of the state. You've been very deeply involved with this. Can you tell us what the vibe is here in terms of uh, uh, Gavin Newsom and Diablo Canyon? Well, uh, you know, I live about 15 miles away in the house creaks with the cha the change in the temperature from morning till night but every time it creaks now i'm i'm wondering what's happening there because it's been fully up online for over 2 weeks and 100% when i saw um when i saw what happened at cop and i knew it was coming because you know people were talking about it. it's the first time oil corporations have been invited and i went uh oh when when i saw what happened um, my first thought was, and there's been things written about this, 
post JFK's assassination, there's a theory that uh, for W to, uh, you know, provide his, uh, prove himself, he had to be involved with the the only three days missing on his campaign uh, were the, th the day before, the day of, and the day after John Jr.'s plane went down in the Atlantic. Uh, and then a photo of him and a couple of friends of, of George W. in front of the JFK or John Jr.'s hangar, airplane hangar. When I saw this, I thought, you know, the two major parties in the United States have to uh, to be president. Do you do you have to show your fealty to to big oil and big nuke? I guess so, because that perfectly times with Newsom's about face here uh, close to a year and a half ago now from being pro solar to coming down on top of rooftop solar and cutting the financing for that and going all in for the revival of Diablo Canyon, uh, you know, the, the most thoughtful, best way to shut down a nuclear power plant. But, you know, all I've been saying is that nuclear industry is just looking at red ink. They're, they're looking at having to decommission these plants if they were responsible at all. Uh, the first thing that was changed in California, but the law used to say that um, you had to provide a cost-benefit analysis compared to the alternative, and you had to provide, you know, safety information. And those were basically within agreement with the Newsom administration and the NRC. Those were both scrapped and facilitated the billion dollars coming in from the government and the billion from or so from the state. And I'm not even sure where that originally came from, but it's that's where we're at right now. And it's like the people of the world, you know, uh, need to organize. And we, we're, we're organizing here and uh, making our attempts to have that shut down through Linda Seeley and the Mothers of Peace that are doing the, the main on-the-ground legwork. Well, the bottom line here, and people need to understand this, is that um, you had a, a global conference, a global annual conference, that was dealing with uh, the issue of climate change which everybody with any kind of sanity knows is directly linked to the burning fossil fuels. And suddenly, in the year 2023, the global conference dealing with uh, climate change is taken over by the oil industry. I mean, just flat out, as Carl has reported, how do you have a conference on global warming run by a Middle Eastern oil uh, baron? It's insane. And then accompanied by a call to triple the nuclear power plants in the world. It's insane. And then well, at the same time, in California, sorry, Tatanka? Well, also, we'll maybe have Danny Sheehan on to talk about this. You know, the one issue that independents, Republicans, and Democrats were coming together around over the last several months was a Schumer bill to uh, pass this legislation um, to basically make public uh, what the nuclear industry and the aerospace industry has known for our entire lifetimes about the existence of UFOs and the 70 plus um, civil races they've found and the the downing of the planes and the reverse engineering of that, what they've been doing with it. Ta our U.S. taxpayer money uh, ever since Eisenhower, uh, GE and Raytheon and the corporate structure took over the the government structure, but 
that it's our technology. And this was going through very, very well until just a little over a week ago, right before our weekly meeting where Danny called up and said, sorry, I got to be, I've got work to do tonight. Um, uh, Gates on the floor of uh, the MAGA, you know, people in Congress has, was having a, a press conference the next day and they got to Tuberville and another guy in Ohio, you know, with the two major aerospace areas. And uh, they got to them and evidently it's not going to go through and they're going to hold up the whole funding thing now over this to make changes in it. So what the changes they made in the legislation were the guts of it. Um, Danny Sheehan had been involved in in Thanks. in this process, but the guts of it is it was going to give the Senate until the 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 office that was set up in the senate and the house to take information from the military uh it was a, a presidential order that biden had signed and approved that started on three, two days before christmas last year that ordered the the pentagon all aspects of the military the defense department the intelligence community and private contractors to reveal everything they know about ETs and UFOs, they call them UAPs now, since January of 1945. And so then the number of people coming to, from the military, because Danny had a client um, who was uh, prevented from doing his job, the top guy in the Pentagon, and that led to a series of meetings within the Defense Department, which led to this, this legislation. This was the bill to formalize it with the Congress and to fund this, this committee of civilians that Danny Sheehan was setting up that would vet all the information. Cause you can imagine things coming out from, from the aerospace industry and the military that a lot of it won't be true, right? So what Gates and the other people did is they, posi they positioned what was going on as obstruction to revealing the truth. And they were the ones that wanted to hijack this whole issue anyway, in order to have the budget go through this incredibly bad piece of legislation, which got rid of the civilian committee and got rid of the ability of that commission with subpoena power to get the information that the military didn't want. Now, what's underneath it? You're saying, why are we talking UFOs with all this? Imagine this, it's, this is one of the things that has to be confirmed. Imagine a, U, a United States created um, aircraft, yeah. which they have, that can go at such a speed that within less than two minutes could deliver nuclear payload to Beijing or Moscow. Well, talking in addition to all that on the Congress and the, and the, the great work you've done, and we're gonna discuss this further, in California, on the energy issue, um, at the, you know, Newsom, and this is critical, and then we're going to go to uh, uh, John Steiner and Camilla Reese. Um, California has been the great, uh, as you know, um, a proving ground for renewable energy. And in California, we have 1.8 million rooftop solar installations generating far more power than the nuclear, the one nuclear power plant in California left, which is Diablo Canyon. 
And until last year, there was in place a landmark uh, uh, pathfinding, path-breaking uh, deal, which was signed by the governor of California in 2016, was then Jerry Brown, the lieutenant governor, who's Gavin Newsom, the current governor, and a very likely candidate for president of the United States, the state legislature, the owner of the util of the nuclear plant, the major unions, the local uh, governments, the local environmental groups, all signed on to this very carefully designed package to phase out the Diablo Canyon nuclear plants, the last in California, in 2024 uh, and the next year in 2025. And this was proceeding and the uh, renewable energy uh, replacement for Diablo Canyon was moving ahead very, very well. This is an industry in California, solar, solar power, that employs 70,000 people, 70,000, 70,000 people. And suddenly, in April of last year, the uh, the governor who had signed this deal in 2016 strong arms the legislature and pulls the deal, with leaving us with the possibility that Diablo Canyon, these two nuclear plants, would continue to operate for another 20 years. Yeah. Well, all I'll say is that we should not be surprised that the most powerful people in the world around energy are resisting and doing this. This is what they do. It's corporate capture of COP now, along with corporate capture of governments. So right. we just so need to is... have an effective, nonviolent international movement for all the things we're facing. Based well, this, local... is, this is basically the fossil nuclear empire strikes back. Right. There is, there is no doubt that with the work of Amory Lovins, who's been on with us, and uh, Mark Jacobson and so many others, we see very clearly that the entire energy supply for the world can come from renewables, efficiency, and especially now huge breakthroughs in batteries. We yes. have California and, now. And, and they also had to oh, they also had to eliminate <laughs> the the uh, competitive market out of the place. It's like too big to not fail, too big. To, I don't even know what to call it. It's just right. right with California when it's proving itself financially as well in every other way. They had to shut basically shut down the market and tilt it in the favor of the so, utilities and the oil companies and the nuclear giants. So now in California, we actually have battery storage, backup battery storage with three times the capacity of Diablo Canyon. So there is absolutely no possible justification for continuing to operate Diablo Canyon as a counterbalance to possible blackouts. And yet we have this guy who, you know, at 6'3", 6'4", uh, governor of the biggest state, um, uh, uh, governor of a political entity, which could be the fifth largest economy in the world, uh, now being pro reversing his entire career and becoming pro-nuclear. And uh, it's a terrifying prospect. Uh, we're going to go, uh, uh, thank you, Carl, and, and Tatanka for those expositions. We'll uh, go to Camilla and John in a minute. Let me just uh, get these two questions. Uh, Justin and then Steve Kaiser, and then we'll uh, move ahead. Justin, Justin LeBlanc. Let's get you unmuted. We have... I have Steve go first because mine's kind of a wrap. Okay, Steve Kaiser, go ahead. We have uh, well, I don't know. 
I don't know what all to say about this. This is really a big area. I've been a ufologist myself for about 35 years, and I'm witnessing it all starting to really explode. The information about this is coming out at the seams. They can no longer contain it. Uh, we've been in an era probably since 41 where the Cape Girardeau craft came down in Missouri uh, to the present time to deny uh, actually uh, acquiring these craft and, and secreting them away. Uh, Area 51 was a prime place for this particular the okay. escort. Uh, is that enough? We Am I talking too much? Yeah, yeah no, that's good. And we wanted to keep uh, uh, on the UFO issue, and we thank you, Steve, for that. And uh, we're going to do it in more detail at a future date if we can do that. Is, anyway, I just want to describe, we've been in, in this uh, closed uh, condition since the 40s about the craft. Yes. Uh, about abductions, probably the Betty and Barney Hill thing in 61. Uh, okay. When it started. Anyway, there's a lot coming out. We do have a craft, almost certainly, that we have produced with cooperating with aliens on this. Okay. Uh, uh, Steve, we're gonna, yes. But, we're going to come back to that at a later date. Because we got an agenda here, but we appreciate that and thank you for talking. Okay, it's, it's all exploding right now, and it's going to be yes, a big paradigm shift in the next five to ten years. And a paradigm okay. shift in that, in UFOs, and also in, in energy. Justin, real quick, and then we're going to go to uh, uh, John and Camilla. Uh, Justin, go ahead. It looks like Wendy's come on, so I'm going to give defer to her first as well. Okay, Wendy, just real quick, and then Justin, and then we're going to go to John and Camilla. Thank you. Sorry, really quick. Um, just to say that um, the you were talking about Gavin possibly becoming president, and I just remembered Florida just canceled its primaries. The Democratic Party and the the caucus and everybody only qualified Biden to be on the ballot, so we're not going to have a ballot for the primaries, even though oh. Marianne's polling better than any of the Republicans. Yeah. So I just thought that was kind of pertinent, and um, and yeah, I just want to say that. Thank you. Well, that's a big that's a big piece of information. Uh, we'll deal with that in, de in depth later. Thank you for that, uh, Justin. And then we're going to switch over to John and Camilla. Sure. So th there's a lot of this throwing in the towel even before the fight starts, and I'm basically going to, in, in a future session, want to really dig in deep as to why we don't have a really strong uh, solidarity movement despite things like climate marches. But the summary of all of it and I'm a Cal Poly graduate, so I'll give you the hands-on tour of this, is we Very have quickly. three examples each of overriding self-control, overriding smarts, and overriding the services sector. And it's all based on the media system that uh, Dr. Epstein brought up to us last week. And so I want to give a wider lens on all of that when I get a chance for a, okay, a long Maybe in the second hour. That'd be great. Uh, I will say that at the top of the hour, we're going to be joined by Dr. Kenneth Stern from the Bar Bard College uh, 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 Center for the Study of Hate. And we're going to have another roundtable on the Middle East um, and Ukraine, which about which I read some very disturbing stuff. So thank you for that, Justin, and stick with us. Um, um, uh, we're going to go now um, to the issue of fundraising, uh, both specific to this cause and in general for the progressive movement and getting our funding uh, switched over to grassroots organizing. And we have two really, really great figures uh, in this uh, sector, uh, John Steiner, uh, who's out in Colorado, and Camilla Reese, who's in Rhode Island, uh, who've been with us from the start and who've been really, really great. We did put in the 
invitation, a, uh, a summary of the funding, uh, uh, the overview uh, of the need for it for these calls. And uh, but it's been a pleasure to work with John and Camille on these issues. And um, uh, go ahead, both of you, please. We'll go to the top of the hour and then we'll go to our Middle East discussion. So uh, uh, take it away, John and or Camilla. Thank you, Harvey. And I'll start and then Camilla will come on. So just greetings to everybody on this call. I think each of us, Harvey, you call great whenever you introduce one of us. So I'm glad to be part of the great team that's on every week. And the other thing I would say is what follows is an unpaid political announcement. And this is really on behalf of GREEP. Um, and as Harvey alluded to, part of what we're doing is helping other groups raise money, but this, this one's for us. So I've been part of a small team that's been meeting on behalf of financially supporting you, Harvey, and your team that does great work on putting on these calls every week. And as you wrote in the great piece, in your announcement today, and which we're gonna send out to everyone as an attachment. And Stephen, if it's possible, could you put that in chat um, or just refer back to what Harvey sent out this morning? We need to raise close to $60,000 for next year, which allows Harvey, Wendy Lederman, Stephen Caruso, and Mike Hirsch to be reasonably and fairly compensated for their good work each week on our behalf. And we're looking to raise half of that starting today and going into early January. And we're hoping that a prior donor to GREEP will be able to match that. So to that end, and in that spirit, that money follows relationship and our own kind of informal GoFundMe campaign, we're inviting everyone on the call to make a donation of any amount. And Steve, could you again put the uh, donation piece in the chat? And then to invite you to reach out to others you might know who might also be willing to chip in. We're also going to follow this up with an email to everyone on Harvey's list. So, Camilla, would you add a little bit to that and fill out sure. a few contours? Yeah. So, um, well, what we're trying to do is leverage all of our contacts and Harvey's contacts to support this fabulous forum going forward. And uh, they really deserve it. And um, it's always a good thing if we can say that a certain percentage of the participants are uh, uh, support it. So even the smallest amount to show your, you know, in support would be helpful. And then the second thing is, you know, who do you know who could give a hundred dollars? Who do you know who could give a thousand or more? And understand that um, sometimes it's easier to be a fundraiser for other people instead of for yourself. At least that's what I've found. And but in this case, it's actually kind of an opportunity, as I see it, because we're not just asking for money, we're educating, we're giving them value, we're telling them about these calls, and then and they can participate or listen live or on the recordings, and they can share it with their constituents, their friends, their people. Um, so it's there's real value here. That it, so I would say, if there are people that you can think of that might be donors, approach approach them with from a place of real abundance and not scarcity because these calls are valuable. They are really unique. And um, in fact, one of our members, uh, one of our group, um, David Saltman, he's been in the news business for many years. He told me once that he gets more, uh, more information, more valuable information here than in the mainstream news. 
you know, so there's real value here and we'd like more people to know about it, support it. And we'd really appreciate everybody's help in any way that you can. Thank you. Well, Camille. Thank you the that. only thing that Camille and I would add to that, if there are any, if there's anybody on the call who might be able to take us to a major donor, however we define that, it could even be a few hundred bucks and you would like us to approach them on your behalf, please let us know. And one of us on the team will get back to you or to them. I'll put my email uh, address in the chat when we're done here. And then Mike Hirsch, would you just come on and kind of elaborate what Harvey has put into this incredible document of what you have seen as just the extraordinary value that we all get to these calls each week? Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll be very brief, but I, I really hope everybody pays attention. This is not just information, although it absolutely is. You'll get information from these Zooms that you probably will not get 99.9% um, .9 of other places. Rare information from eyewitnesses, people on the front lines, whether they're battling to free Julian Assange or whether it's Stephen Donziger himself talking about his own travails. You'll hear from leaders of organizations like the National Organization for Women. You'll hear um, from authors who have cutting edge books with exciting information. But beyond all the information that you're getting, which is great, we're also the connective tissue for the nonpartisan, non-affiliated, progressive movement. We bring people together who you know, Harvey always says this, you guys, if you don't know each other, you should. And next thing you know, they're working together. It's like instant uh, coalition, just add uh, Harvey, because he brings people together. Um, and the one that leaps to mind is Andrea Miller, who's one of our favorites, and, and Ray McClendon, who's another one of our favorites. And they come on. Another thing that's different about this, some shows – You'll hear from somebody every few months. We have some of the top leaders, some of the, the, the most intelligent, um, effective organizers in the country that come on week after week after week because we're helping to organize organizers. And Ray and Andrea are a perfect example of that. They were both doing everything that they could in their most tremendous ways to um, get out the vote in Georgia because with a higher turnout, we get better elected officials. I'm not gonna make any partisan statements about that. It just, it's just a fact of life. And Ray and Andrew were both doing great work together. I mean, apart, but when they came on to this show, we put them together. They got to know each other. And because both of them are consummate organizers, they immediately saw the value in working together. They started working together and good things happened. And that is the value added that this Zoom with Harvey Wassman, he's gonna be very modest and say he's just a, a, a guy joking around and telling stories and making his uh, observations, but don't let him fool you. He's been doing this all his life. He's been constructing movements where movements were needed. And this is the latest and greatest effort where he can sit there and, um, you know, put his teeth in, <laughs> roll up <laughs> his sleeves and get down to work. And in his 
kind and wise and thoughtful way, he is making a big impact without, you know, without uh, making a big fuss about it at all. And we're all part of it. Everybody who comes to these Zooms, we're all part of it. We're all suggesting guests, guests like Keith Ellison, uh, Jim Hightower, um, my own state senator, Jeff Waldstriker. I saw him the other day and he was so happy. He said, I was so shocked to see how many people were on the Zoom. There aren't that many Zooms where there's more than just a handful of people anymore. He said he was getting uh, flashbacks to the uh, the, the depths of, of the pandemic. And I said, yeah, but you don't have to get tested after <laughs> a grief Zoom. But he was, he you know, this is somebody who's been in um, government for 16 years. This will be going into his 17th year. And he had never seen anything like it. He's been working and active in Maryland, and we gave him a crash course on the precarious nuclear reactor in Maryland. Yeah, he'd heard about it, but we made it a priority for him. These are the kinds of things that happen on this Zoom. Maybe it happens somewhere else, but I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen movements created in real time, week after week after week, movements that actually go out and get things done. And we are going to close down Diablo Canyon. We are going to close down these other nuclear reactors. And when we do, it's going to be because of this Zoom. And we're not only going to do that, we're going to do a whole bunch of other things. We're going to close down Cop City. We're going to fight for free speech and journalism. And we know this because the guests who come on here tell us that we will. So we're going to do it. But we can't keep doing it without your support. So please, you know, I sound like a pledge drive here, but that's one thing uh, Sluggo insisted that we not do. But um, we're going to make an exception as we get into the holidays. Dig deep, pitch in, keep doing, keep us doing and all of us, not just Sluggo, not just the guests, not just the uh the moderators, but everybody on this Zoom, keep us empowered, keep us focused. And Milo just said, we're not going to take all the credit. No, we're not. But we're going to do what we can. And considering our shoestring budget and the fact that we meet for a couple hours and then sometimes a little longer than that each week, um, we are the mouse that roared. We, we are the voice of the people. We are people power at work and we're the most democratic way of doing things small d most progressive way of doing things big p and um so p can also stand for pitch in we really need your help thank you so much well thank you mike uh, that's beautiful thank you john and camilla um uh, harvey we're almost done not quite one more thing yeah, go ahead please uh mike again yes thank you nobody could have said it better and Stephen Caruso, if we could, if it's possible to edit just what we have been talking about, that's something, A, we can have available to everybody on the call to support all of you in your efforts, and we can send it out to the whole list. So we can talk about that when we're offline. But mostly on behalf of the team and Harvey, continued great work, and we're here to support you. Thank you so much. I really, we all really appreciate uh, uh, Camilla. Did did you want to add in before we move on? Okay. Yep. It, the, the link to donate is in the chat. And as is the recently polished and finalized 
Greek document that Harvey wrote. It's great. great. Well, thank you both, John and Camilla. And thank you, of course, uh, Mike. You guys have been really above and beyond. So I will tell you the story. When we first started, I had no consciousness of raising money. And um, uh, I got a call really early, you know, two, two and a half years ago. Uh, a friend of mine from Greenpeace had, uh, had tuned into the calls. I don't even know how he got to us. Uh, I'll leave him unnamed. And he asked me, he called me and asked me if we wanted $25,000. And I said, well, yeah, I guess that'd be all right. And so uh, that's how we wound up with Steve Caruso, Wendy Lederman, and Mike Hirsch. So um, if you folks know funders, uh, that that's really a big piece of it. Uh, to, I know a lot of you are just uh, grassroots activists, but if you know funders and can put us on their lists, it is before the end of the year and that would be helpful. I will add also that in the funding world, one of the um, major <clears throat> motivating issues that we've been dealing with all these calls on these calls is to switch progressive funding in uh, elections from media buys to grassroots campaigning. And this is one of the, uh, you know, we consider ourselves a grassroots group. And we've had Andrea, as Mike uh, mentioned, Andrea Miller and Ray McClendon, uh, who were unified uh, or put together by this call, but also really have committed and laid the groundwork for what's going to be especially important in 24, which is to get prog any progressive money going into elections away from uh, party media buys and into democracy centers and relational organizing and all the other stuff that made the difference in, in Georgia in 2020, 21, and 22. And uh, Camilla and John and I, uh, along with Mike and Wendy and Steve and others have been, and Joel Siegel especially, Joel really, who thankfully is with us today, has been one of the great pioneers in this. If anybody has given us the guidance to uh, understand the need to switch uh, from media campaigning to grassroots campaigning, it's been the great Joel Siegel. So really glad to have you with us. And we also have Maya <clears throat> um, Van Rossen, who's done the, the Green um, Amendments. One of the things we intend to do in the coming year uh, with, with John and uh, Camilla's guidance and also Joel and, and Mike is to make this a big campaign issue in the progressive community. So the people understand that money going to media buys is a waste and uh, uh, and money going to a relational and democracy center organizing is really what's going to make the difference, as it did, by the way, in 2020 and 22. So there you go. Thank you so much, John and Camilla. Thank you for, for making me want making we do that. We did put up a, a piece that if you can circulate, if you have to know a millionaire here or there to help support us. And we do pass money on. We actually passed a lot of money on in 2020 uh, when uh, we, we first came on the scene and started talking about uh, grassroots relational organizing. And it did make a difference, actually. So if people want to consider that, uh, and we, we do appreciate it. Okay? Thank you so much. Thank you again, John and Camilla. I would have never done that myself. Thank you, Mike and uh, Wendy and uh, so many others, you, Joel. Okay, uh, that that having said that, we're going to move. Does anybody else want to chime in before we move ahead? It's the top of the hour. We uh, have promised to 
move into, uh, I hope John, John and Camilla, you uh, are, are satisfied with this this piece of the, pu the puzzle and uh, we will make it more tangible as we go ahead, okay? We do have Ken Stern has joined us and Dave Saltman. We are gonna jump into the discussion. This is our third round table of uh, world, the wars going on in the world now, um, especially, especially in the Middle East and Ukraine. Uh, I, I do want to give Ellie Parisi a real quick call. Just we can come to you later. That'd be great. Uh, Ellie Parisi, go ahead. You haven't spoken, and then we'll go to Ken Stern and Dave Saltman. Ellie, unmute. I think you've not been with us before. Okay, there we go. I hope. Trying to unmute you here. Okay. Hello. Yes, please. Great. Thank you. So thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm, I'm Ellie Parisi. I'm uh, a chemical and biomolecular engineer. And um, I received word that you guys were talking about uh, Dr. Robert Epstein's research uh, last yeah, week. Yeah, but you know, Ellie, can we, can we, can you stick with us until we go to the end of this discussion? Would that be all right with you? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. We're a little behind schedule. Ellie, we appreciate you being with us. And Justin, if you both hold your peace, we have uh, two really distinguished not that you're not distinguished, but we have two really distinguished guests with us who are on a timetable. So we will come to it. Okay, thank you. So Ken Stern um, and Dave Saltman. Maybe I should have Dave Saltman introduce you, Ken. I read your uh, your bio, and it would take the whole rest of the hour to go through it. You are one impressive dude. Uh, I'm just old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're not as old as I am. But, uh, and you still have your teeth. So um, uh, Ken Stern and Dave Saltman, if you guys will lead us, you know, we're in this horrible dilemma. I've been beating myself up trying to figure out what to say, if anything, publicly about the conflict in the Middle East. You know, if, you, if I had my way, I would have the leaders of Hamas on trial in, um, in, in the, ha the Hague with the leaders of Israel, starting with Netanyahu. Don't get me going on Netanyahu. We'll be here for the next hour. But uh, which we will be, but it won't be as productive as hearing from you and Dave. So, Ellie, will you, uh, uh, Ken, will you tell us about the Center for the Study of Hate at Bard College and where this fits in? And, and Dave Saltman, if you'll chime in, Dave Saltman is our great uh, media vet, uh, been with us forever. So uh, go ahead, you guys. Uh, uh, Ken, if you'll start, sure. tell us, what is, what is the Center for the Study of Hate? First of all, thank you for inviting me, and this is all from my colleague uh, from AJC from years ago, Dave Saltman, so it's a pleasure to do that with him, too. Um, basically, the David and others who worked in, in NGOs dealing with anti-Semitism, other types of hatred would probably ratify is that a lot of what the groups do that oppose hatred really are doing it by the seat of their pants or their you know, anger about things in, in the news and so forth. And there was an observation a number of years ago. There's a tremendous amount of good information that comes out of the academy, but it's not translating into what NGOs are doing, what government is doing, what philanthropists are supporting, um, and that there needed to be an effort to sort of marshal the knowledge that's also siloed in different parts of the academy into something larger and useful, just sort of like we do with medicine because people get sick. So therefore we pull from biology and chemistry and physics to answer that or for architecture, you know, from uh, art and physics and, and math and so forth. So, you know, it's the idea that we're going to marshal what we know about human hatred, the ability of people, no matter where or when, 
to see and define another, and sometimes that leading to demonization, dehumanization, great violence, genocide, and so forth, and trying to construct what, at least what we could do that does no harm. So Bard set up a center in 2018, which I'm honored to direct, but I had a hand in the establishment of the first one at Gonzaga University in the late 90s, and there's one in UCLA and other places, and we're trying to make all of us smarter about how we think about hatred. So that's that's my day job. Um, you know, the other part of it is that on the Israel-Palestine stuff, I've obviously been very interested in that for a long time. Uh, and what I've seen is the application of what we know from things about hate to understand not you know not only the conflict to a degree because that gets more complicated than just hate it's different national uh you know narratives and so forth but what we're seeing like playing out in front of congress and colleges the last few weeks the you know what what my last book a couple of years ago it's called the conflict over the conflict why when people get into such buckets where their identity is tethered to an issue of perceived social justice or injustice you know, how our brains work differently, how we seek certainty, how we get into these moral, um, you know, spinning uh, worlds where where all morality is on our side and the other side is, if not stupid, but evil. Um, and it gets very difficult to have empathy or the intellectual imagination to understand why somebody would see something differently. So that's part of what I've been doing too. I know that that Harvey and others have mentioned a couple of other things that resonate with the you know the work that we're doing. Uh, the importance of democracy. I think that democracy is a key uh, prerequisite to fighting hatred of any time, any kind. And you know the idea of free speech. What we're seeing now, and I don't know if anybody wants to talk about the congressional hearings this last week, or the letter that the governor Hochul put out over the weekend that said, you know, you're going to get in trouble with the school if you say anything that's that's perceived as, as being, uh, you know, pro-genocide, uh, even as a matter of opinion, um, that we're, we're sacrificing what the academy can do by trying to censor people we don't like and using government to do that. And I see all sides in this conflict doing that. So those are all the things I'm sort of working on, but I'm happy to delve into any of them any deeper than, you know, you'd like to tell me what you want to talk about. Well, this is phenomenally fascinating, and, and uh, you know the, these hearings in, in the uh, Congress uh, with these three female presidents of universities uh, were staggering, and it's really going to take a lot to figure out what actually happened there. We had one resignation, and um, and what's it all about? Uh, Dave Saltman, uh, do you want to jump in, and then we'll go back to Ken. Uh, Ken, you've written a number of books. Dave Saltman has um, made uh, 200 documentaries, including uh, Emmy Emmy Award-winning stuff. Um, Dave Saltman, if you'll jump in, and then we'll go back and forth between you and Ken, and we'll take questions. Okay. Hi, Ken. Really good to see you. Uh, Likewise. <laughs> between the two of you, I've known the two of you a combined total of 90 years. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Anyway, I'm not sure I have much to add at this point, I, except I would like to just maybe put one personal note into this because I've discovered from the course of this conversation over the in recent periods that my personal background is a little different from most American Jews. Um, 
my mother, who would be 100 years old this year, was born in 1923 in Haifa, Palestine. My mother is a Palestinian Jew, and I've seen her passport. She has a Palestinian passport. And when Golda Meir said, I'm a Palestinian, she wasn't being uh, metaphorical. She was stating a simple fact uh, about what her passport said. Now, I have all, and my mother comes from a very old family in Israel, one of the largest families in Israel. And they're one of the very few families that go back to biblical times. They never went on the diaspora. This is my mother's family through the female line. And so when I went to Israel to visit them, I've only been there a couple of times, and I'm not a specialist in Israel, although I have studied Islamic history and I've spent a lot of time in the Arab world and I've studied Arabic and so on. So uh, I'm only slightly less stupid about it than most people. Um, what, I, what I was shocked by was the fact that all of my mother's family, who are super uh, well-educated and uh, uh, charming people, are completely native fluently, fluent in Arabic and in Hebrew and in English, spoken without accents in any of those languages. And they also were good in French and German and Russian and whatnot, too, because... That's just what, you know, Jewish intellectuals do, I suppose. Uh, anyway, their take on the entire, they had grown up with Arabs. My, my great uncle used to take me for walks in the street. He was born in Jerusalem, by the way. My mother was born in Haifa. My grandmother was born in Akko. The others were born in Svat, that whole northern tier of Israel. Um, my family owned a, a well in Haifa which became the subject of the very first lawsuit filed against the Israeli the new Israeli government in 1948. Uh, the, the Israeli government wanted to take this well over by eminent domain, and my family sued the Israeli government and won the case. And this is now the very first case that you ever study if you go to law school in Israel. Um, so their perspective on this was totally different from what I'm hearing now. First of all, of, of course, they considered Jews to be uh, what was a Franz Fanon who called them the wretched of the earth and the oppressed people of the world. And they saw Israel, of course, as, as uh, you know, the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy and so on. But more to the point, they were there. This family married into a lot of the, the original um, uh, Zionists who came over in 1880, started buying up land in 1880 until 1948. And, you know, so they were very familiar with, uh, with uh, the Zionist movement, of course. And they were very much, the thing that I'm trying to get across is they loved, they liked Arabs. They were very, not only knowledgeable about Arabs and about Islam, and about all sorts of esoteric Arab customs and Sufism they knew all about and so on. Um, they reveled in this. This was part of the charm of living there. And they would take me out for walks in the street and I would meet these you know, dervishes that they, they knew and so on. There was tremendous bonding. This is now, we're talking about 
you know, pre-67 and even post-67, uh, all of that changed in my view and in their view in the 70s. And I just want to add one more thing, and then I'm going to, I want Ken to, Ken really is the expert on this, not me. Uh, they considered, when, it, when you talked about the two-state solution, for them, they were all there in 1920. And in 1919, the Treaty of Paris, which established the, which was the first uh, presentation of the two-state solution. And they were very much of the, this is where the Jewish state was first called Palestine. And it was first called Palestine, not by the Jews, but by, by uh, uh, Prince Faisal, who had been elected king of the Arabs for purposes of uh, negotiating the peace treaty that ended the Turkish Empire in World War I. And Palestine, the Palestine Mandate, was divided into two parts. The Western part was called Palestine by Prince Faisal in a document that you can read if you, if you know the publication Foreign Relations of the United States, which is the official State Department history of the world. It's in there, the original, in his handwriting. And the, the second state, the Eastern part of Palestine, is the place we now call Jordan. They always considered this the two. This was the original two-state solution, and it's not only that they considered it. And this is my last statement here. This was signed by all parties, including the Palestinian Arabs, the Zionists, the winners of the war, the four, the five uh, Allied powers, and in the the Treaty of Paris, and then the Treaty of Sev. The Turks deeded the territory over to them for further dis, uh, disposition. So from my relative's viewpoint, ancient Jews who, who lived in the, uh, the, the historical homeland forever, the two-state solution is, is 100 years old, roughly this year. Uh, I got to tell you, the day's knowledge is quite unique. We've talked about this, he and I, for hours. And uh, Ken, sure. my uh, thank you, Dave, and stay with us. My uh, personal feeling about this situation, which is, 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 I think, actually close to the predominant view in Israel, is that this is Netanyahu's war, and that, that he is he has set this thing up to go on forever so that he can stay in power and out of jail. That's my personal view, and I and I'm reading Haaretz and other things from uh, the Middle East and and from Israel. If it's not the predominant view, it's certainly common, along with the idea that he deliberately opened the gates for Hamas to come in and and do this horrible slaughter. And and it's not there's no doubt it's in the New York Times yesterday a major piece that Netanyahu has been supporting Hamas for years. As is in Gaza, where yeah, does it all fall in? And I'm going to ask you a very simple question: How do we solve this situation? <laughs> okay, so yeah, you right. Go. Yeah, well, there's there's an, easy, an easy solution. Uh, yeah, there, there's okay. your assignment for the next half hour. So go ahead and right. tell it. So anyway, so let me, a couple of points. One is, you know, I, I, even way before October seventh, and I agree with you, Netanyahu is a disaster. For you know, spend forever talking about that, but. 
you know, going back even to 67, what, what David was talking about, you know, I think the, the, when the, the, and especially since, um, you know, 93, um, the, when the history of this period is written, I think the major uh, problem, in addition to, um, you know, the things on the Arab side, are that uh, the Israelis didn't do enough to make the Palestinian Authority successful. They did, in fact, support Hamas as a way as a counterbalance to uh, the Palestinian Authority. I see the two-state solution as the only thing that could possibly work. Uh, and Israel has, um, you know, undermined it in various ways, not to say that the Palestinians did everything they, they should have, um, they haven't. A uh, few points to pick off of, off of what David was talking about, because I think they're they're important. Uh, my family didn't go back there that far, but I had an uncle, a great uncle that went over in the 1920s. But part of the way I, I look at, at the, the conflict is again through the sort of hate studies lens and the the fact that when we get so juiced about issues that are important to us, uh, we go into these binary buckets. And again, it's not just on Israel and Palestine. We see it on abortion. We see it on, um, you know, MAGA. We see it on so many immigration, uh, so many other issues. So let me give you a, a couple of examples of where I see some of the discussion about this getting into those buckets about the, about the conflict itself, but reflected in some ways on, on the campus. Um, when I put the book together to talk about why each side was trying to censor the other and was getting into these, these uh, maximalist uh, views, I felt I needed to put out the two narratives, uh, the Jewish-Israeli one and the Palestinian one, and I put out the, you know, the, the Jewish one very much like David said, Jews have always been there and, and, you know, talked about the Bible, the importance of the religion, the importance of the culture, the synagogues, any place focused towards Jerusalem, um, you know, the importance of the land and, and the history to Jewish people. Um, and then I, you know, set out the Palestinian narrative and I had a, a draft of the chapter that I shared with an academic friend, and she said, you know, it's really important which one you put first. And I thought about that, and I I put the, the one that I'm more comfortable with, the Jewish one, first, but then I had a long footnote that said, imagine if I had decided to do it the other way and put the Palestinian story, that they were, Arabs were always there, and you always had Jews there, but they were a minority. Um, and then you started having this Jewish immigration from the Zionist movement, from pogroms, certainly after World War II. Um, and they lost their ability to control their lives in the way that you know they had envisioned um, it was capable. And I said, imagine if I had started with that narrative and brought in Jews as secondary characters, uh, basically to thwart your ability to, to achieve what you wanted. Um, you know, how would that make you feel? So that's one vignette of the sort of the buckets of where we go into these um, things with that nuance. Um, second is I, you know, we've seen a lot uh, in the last few, couple of months of campus stuff with people talking about Israel as a settler colonialist uh, society. Um, and, you know, I have in my book, I have this couplet that I really like of um, a group called the Palestinian Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, which really started the BDS movement in many ways. 
and it sent a letter to the Iroquois Confederacy in New York. And I knew these folks, David knows, I, I used to be the co-counsel for Dennis Banks of the co-founder of the American Indian Movement and wrote a book about that too. And so I got to know some of the people when he was hiding out from, um, uh, you know, getting extradited to South Dakota in the, in the 80s, uh, hiding out in the Iroquois Confederacy. So I knew that a lot of those guys. Why did the Pacti folks write to the Iroquois? Because the Iroquois uh, basically loved lacrosse. They claimed that they invented it and they were going to go to the international or world lacrosse championship um, in Tel Aviv. And Pacti said, don't do it. You said, you know, your victims of settler colonialism like we are. It's a betrayal. Uh, don't. Um, and I contrasted that with a quote from Judea Pearl, who's a UCLA professor. I guess he's now emeritus. Uh, the father of Daniel Pearl, the journalist who was beheaded. And he said, name me another settler colonialist um, that uh, speaks the language before the current inhabitants. Name me another settler colonialist that uh, names towns, not New Baghdad, uh, you know, New York, New Berlin, but names of known in biblical time and so forth. And then I quote an academic that says, you know, the ability to have both of those thoughts in your mind at the same time is true history. The rest uh, is simply communal advocacy. And then the third thing, again, you know, we're, we've been so focused this last few weeks about not only the conflict, but again, you know, my most of my interviews have been about the campus stuff. Uh, on you know strict rules, what we should say, what we shouldn't say. Is it anti-Semitism? Is it not anti-Semitism? Um, let me tell you what what academics can actually do. There's a there's a class that I'm, I um, promote um, in the last part of the book about all the things that the campus can do to mine this great issue to get people to think about why people are so disturbed and um you know why we're seeing what we're seeing on the campus at the moment and, and you know i could talk more about that too but this one is really an interesting one because david was talking about the pre-48 so what it is it's a simulation class and what it does is it looks at the Peel Commission from the 1930s and those that might not remember when david was right the brits had the mandate and, you know, there were riots, there were attacks from Jews and Arabs, and the Brits, what should we do? So they sent Lord Peel to go and talk to everybody, and he did. And he, um, you know, it was the late 30s, and what the class is, is not only given the background information, but the students had to take a character, either one of the Brits or one of the Arabs, one of the Jews, and faithfully represent them for six or eight weeks, do the research, pretend they're them in that, that commission. So this is, you know, the guts of the conflict before the Holocaust, before 67, before current events, for sure. Um, and the students had to, whenever possible, get a role that was against type. So the way I found out about this class is there was a Pakistani Muslim woman who spent six or eight weeks in the skin of David Ben-Gurion. And, you know, when I talked to her about that experience, she said, hey, you think that was weird? I had an Israeli classmate who had to be the Mufti, remember the guy who hit out with Hitler. Um, and she said, as much of a pain in the butt as he was in that class, the guy that was the Jabotinsky figure, the far right, you know, uh, founder of Irgun on my side, was much worse to deal with. 
So, you know, the real complexities of this. And when I talked to the professor who, who came up with this class, she, she laughed and said, you know, it's really funny. Students would come in and say, great, now we're going to know how to solve the Israel-Palestine conflict. And then they come out of the class and say, now we know 80 some odd years after the Peel Commission why it hasn't been solved. So I think those are some of the things that, you know, that we want to get simple answers. I don't know that there's simple answers to the conflict. I know that some of the answers to what we're seeing on the campus don't go down the road of censorship and do go down the, the road of making sure students aren't harassed, intimidated, or bullied, but that they damn well better expect to hear things that are going to, you know, uh, disturb them to their core. And then as academics, we have to help them think about, okay, how do we mind that to understand the world better and why people who are otherwise friendly in our school uh, may have such diametrically opposed views. And, uh, you know, I think the more focus on that, and that's what I've been pushing college presidents and so forth, how are you going to use this as an educational moment? How do you use hate studies in particular um, to help, you know, open up people's minds to what what's happening uh, to get a better understanding of the world that they're going to inherit? So let me take your questions, if that's, if that's okay, Harvey. You're, you're muted. There we go. I'm muted. Sorry. Uh, unmute myself here. There we go. Sorry about that. When you study hate, what exactly, what are the resources used? No, we're going to look at environment. But I, I, when I first saw that, you know, the study of hate, what's your curriculum? Well, there, there, it's interesting. At Bard, we have, I think, the first horse initiative. Um, and so these are classes that intersect the, the definition of hate of hate studies, which is looking at the human capacity to define an us and a, a them, and the things that that promote dehumanization, demonization, and the things that can, can combat it. So it's across the board. We even have dance classes and art classes that intersect. Um, you know, looking at the us and them and how it works. We also have you know at UCLA and a. a Bard and other places to things that look at hate directly uh, again from the interdisciplinary uh, aspect of it. So to just give you uh, you know a, a couple uh, of of examples, um, we have a, a a book that's going to come out in twenty twenty four that's pulled from experts in philosophy, political science, and looking at conspiracy theory, social psychology, other things. I'm pulling it together as a unit and. To give it, I'm basically saying, if you were running one of these NGOs looking at hate and incorporating what you know from your other academics, what would you do? What wouldn't you do, and why? And starting out with the philosopher is going to do, you know, sort of the equivalent of a Hippocratic oath: first, do no harm. How do we make sure we do no harm? Pulling from these different fields. Other examples of how we, you know, uh, pull together uh, from from you know these different fields that all have something to say, but look at them too much in segregation. You know, um, uh, psychology, just what makes humans hate individually. Social psychology, what do we do as a group? Political science, how it reflects in power. Trying to put those things together. So one of the interdisciplinary things that we did, there's a, a colleague put together the first uh, state of hate index, and what that is is he had the observation like um remember the old green book that uh african americans would have to know which hotel to go to or not same thing in the catskills which places jews could go and which you know could not and he had the observation that there where you are in the country and this is before the dobbs decision 
really impacts how much hate you're going to experience, not just you know, the one state versus another in the number of hate crimes, but the anti-LGBTQ laws, other th things to look at it in a more holistic way. So th those are the things, we're, both how hate manifests um, and how um, we can, you know, combat it. And there's, with the UCLA, I think they're going on 30 different research projects. I mean, they're going down from what makes individuals commit hate crimes to larger societal. There are too many questions, you know, the answer, but as long as we bring together sort of the overarching you know, understanding that human beings have this capacity, this brain science that, that shows that we can, our brains fire differently when we hate somebody. There's a you know a whole whole bunch of things to guide us uh, if, if we can sort of unlock the key, and that's that's part of what we're doing. So I don't have the answers yet, but we're getting better on asking the questions. Uh, Lynn Feinerman. Lynn is a radio host and a uh, 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 very knowledgeable. Lynn, please go ahead. Uh, let me un unmute you here. Go ahead. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the kind words, Harvey. Uh, I would like to respond to what David Saltman was talking about, about his um, forebears, um, his grandmother, his, uh, et cetera. By the way, my mother is 100 and she was born in, in 1923. Um, and she's still around, um, quite a generation. Anyway, I would like to read something uh, because I think that the, um, the heart of the matter, you've, you've come close to the heart of the matter, and I would like to read something to you from Ben Sion Netanyahu, okay? Um, this is what Ben Sion Netanyahu said uh, he's the father of um, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and he says, the tendency toward conflict is in the essence of the Arab. He is an enemy by essence. His personality won't allow him any compromise or agreement. It doesn't matter what kind of resistance he will meet, what price he will pay. His existence is one of perpetual war. Now, uh, I read that because um, I wanted to point out that for generations, there have been people who have said things about quote unquote Arabs. And that has been a source of profound prejudice and profound hatred. And, you know, people who are, um, who, who do Torah study a lot, will quote you uh, what a creator supposedly said to Hagar when Ishmael was born. And that's where that, um, that's where that's derived really is the image of the so-called Arab. I would say that um, when your grandmother was flourishing there, so was Martin Buber. And he had an entirely different, uh, he was a philosopher, he was a Jewish statesperson, he was a marvelous person. Uh, his granddaughter, by the, a great granddaughter, by the way, was in my Jewish group. Um, and he suggested that, you know, hello, we were all humans uh, and we could all get along because we've gotten along historically for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, in Hebron alone, there was a peace for 600 years between Jews and, and uh, Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims. So much so 
that women would nurse each other's babies. That's how wow. close everybody was. And um, what I'd like to say is that a lot of this comes, a lot of the conflict comes from that demonizing of the so-called Arab by those who came to Israel later, okay? And those were the European and American white folks. And they were by their, at their core, maybe not by their nature, but at their core racist. And I think that that's why they are accused these days in Israel of being racist. And I would also just like to point out as a, a, a final comment that 40%, over 40% of uh, Israeli Jews are in fact, hello, Arabs, they're Mizrahi Jews. They originated, their families originated there and they look just like the Palestinians, you cannot tell the difference. Uh, but there is no acknowledgement of that. And that's why I would just like to say to both of you that the use of the word Arab is, you know, is such a trigger point to me because it does not really, um, it, it, it's, it Im immediately when it's used, you know, Jews and Arabs, it's totally misleading. It's wrong. It's inaccurate. It's a mistake. And it, it is a progenitor of alienation. So I could go on and on and thank you for, thank you both Harvey and um, Mike Hirsch and, and Steve for allowing me the extra time. Um, but well, I, you're, I guess you're welcome, man. Well, and, thank and you. And you should probably guest. have Ken on your radio show with David. Um, yeah, I would love to accept Ken as a boy. I mean, a man. I mean, Women Rising Radio is... <laughs> Hey, I'm a feminist. He's just a boy so, at uh, heart, though. And I'm married to a rabbi. I'm a Rebbitzin. Well, you, know. <laughs> you are? How I about am. that? Well, there yeah, is a, that's, that's very a, interesting. Linguistically, um, that's an interesting term. What What is the term, what is the Yiddish or Jewish term for a man who's married to a woman, a, a female rabbi? What the rabbis you know, say about think... this is lucky. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all right. Glucken, glucken, Yiddish glucken. All right, um, since we're so... in a small human humor mode, I will tell you that in terms of the study of hate, I grew up uh, and then went to school uh, in the center of two studies of hate. I I grew up as a Red Sox fan and and uh, do hate Yankee fans. And I also went to the University of Michigan, though I lived in Columbus. And don't ask me what we think of Ohio State. So there you go. Okay, you should study that at Bard. Um, um, Lynn, do you want to wrap? And then we're going to go to uh, Julie, uh, Julie LeBlanc Wiener. Yeah, I would just say by, you know, by way of questioning, since, you know, most of my, I mean, all of it was commentary, um, is to Ken, how do you, I mean, do you, do you have like a separate, you know, sub course? In, in just the terminology and language and how how people talk about each other, what the labels are. Because for me, even pro-Israel and pro-Palestine is profoundly alienating. I'm pro-humanity and I, I don't want to be stuck in some you know round hole with my square or triangular peggishness, you know. 
Um, I think it's the other way around, actually. I think you have a round personality and you're stuck in a scroll. <laughs> but uh, let's talk to Ken about that. And just a, a couple of things, just just you know, for you and anybody else who wants to continue the conversation, let me give you my email. It's K Stern at Bard.edu. So K-S-T-E-R-N at Bard B-A-R-D.edu. Um, there's a on our website we have a collection of hate studies syllabi from around the world. Um, so there are, you know, classes uh, that you can look at that people have taught, not just on this issue, but well, breath of hate um, as well. And, you know, one of the things that uh, a colleague at Bard is is doing, given the current conflict and what we're seeing on the campus is all these terms are being thrown around, right? We're talking about language, anti-Semitism, settler colonialism, genocide, ethnic cleansing, Zionism, anti-Zionism, and they're being thrown around as rhetorical weapons. So what she's doing is, is putting together a class saying, okay, let's examine what each of these terms mean, how we're being how they're being used, how they're being understood. And that, you know, um, I, we don't have the syllabus yet because she's putting it together. I'm going to do a couple of the components for her. Um, but I think that'll be a good model that we should have out in the spring. And I'm, you know, happy to report back to anybody about how it went. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you, Lynn, for that. Quite, quite profound. Uh, Julie and then Dave. Okay. Yeah, I, thank you for both of these presentations, uh, Dave. I'm really intrigued by uh, the history that I wasn't really aware of, although I've seen some references to it in some of the Zionist defenses of their, sorry, I think the word is accurate, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and the desire to expel them back to Jordan. So I'm let me take a step. I want to the question I wanted to ask is, is the implication of that history that the current two-state solution would best be to expel the Palestinians to Jordan? I, I don't think Jordan is particularly in favor of that, and nor are the Palestinians who are now living where they're living. So th that's one uh, one question. Can, but can I address that? Yeah, please. That's a yeah. very good question. And very pertinent question. Uh, so let's just there, and you've got a lot of stuff to unpack in there. Let's not talk about expelling anybody just yet, okay? That's that was the Kahana position, and uh, I don't. And, not and, Yahoo and position. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, and it's very difficult to just present what are unescapable facts without saying what my position. Or what a what some good position might be because honestly I don't know like anybody else. But here's something to think about. Uh, let's regardless of what you do with the West Bank, Jordan has to be a player because it shares a big fat border with the West Bank. There's no way that Jordan can't doesn't sign off on whatever it is. It can't happen otherwise. Um, so, so yes, Jordan is definitely a player. Whether Jordan is the Palestinian state, that was the position of the everybody from 1920. By the way, I just wanted to say to uh, Lynn, thank you for that presentation. My mother just died a few months ago at age 99. I don't Sorry. know how she did it, you know. Uh, maybe it was all the preservatives they ate or something like that. I don't know. But anyway... Um, uh so so that's a good question i i think and i will if you really look into 
Now, this is probably going to get me in trouble, and I, I'm not absolutely sure of the factual situation at the moment, but I will tell you this. For, Ken, maybe you know the answer to this. For quite some time, Jordan had in its uh, laws something very similar to what we're talking about, the right of return. Jordanians or who had been, or Palestinian Arabs who had left any part of mandate Palestine had the right to return to Jordan and get immediate citizenship. Same thing that Israel says about the Jews. Um, now I, I'm, I'm told, and it's, it's not easy to get real factual, like up-to-date information about what's the current situation in Jordan. And all the contacts I used to have are all, you know, either dead or retired. So nobody, I can't go to my usual go-to people. I had, I used to have really good contacts in, in the uh, Arab world. Um, uh, and, and I just wanted to also address that question about the use of the word Arab and the Arab hatred and so on. I, as, I, as I mentioned before, I spent a lot of time in the Islamic world. I've lived in it. I've, I've studied Arabic language and Arabic, Arab uh, Islamic history and so on. And, uh, and you, you, the, the, when, you're, when you're there, it, like you were describing in Hebron, Lynn, it, 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 there's a tremendous bonding. There's a tremendous similarity in these two peoples. You know, you can really get Isaac and Ishmael and you can say like, it either seems like, you know, you, you can get that, 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 that God, you know, told one, one group, you got to do Ishmael and told the other group, you got to do Isaac. I mean, it makes some kind of weird sense, you know, uh, don't ask me to explain that. Um, so anyway, about Jordan. Here, here's here is where I can be on, I think, on solid ground without giving an opinion, but offering what I think are indisputable facts, which in my view is going to be where you, when you really want to solve this problem, you have to start at this point. You can, wherever it goes from there, I should, I should start by saying, whatever the aggrieved parties want to do, I'm for it in advance. If they can agree to whatever, knock yourselves out. Just please do it and get out of my head for once, you know. So having said that, I think you have to, here's, here's the point, and here's why I brought that up about the Treaty of Paris and about the treaty that ended World War I. Every, all the parties to that treaty signed it. It is in force today. It is the operating law governing this situation. It, 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 deals with the legal status of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the legal status of the West Bank, the legal status of the East Bank, and it was all signed as part of an international peace treaty. It's never been repudiated by any party. Ken, you're a lawyer. Tell me if I'm wrong here. It's never been repudiated, and it's still in force. It was the treaty that ended World War I, period. Nothing else has been agreed to. All the UN resolutions were resolutions. They had no legal standing whatsoever. Uh, but this was so this was voted unanimously by the League, the League of Nations. It was ratified by the U.S. Senate unanimously. It was agreed to by all the aggrieved parties, including the Turks, 
who owned the who were the designated owners of the property. And remember how the Arabs got into there into this in the first place. Did everybody here see Lawrence of Arabia? You know that that was that movie was historically pretty accurate. The only difference is that the guy played by Omar Sharif was really played by Prince Faisal. He was the leader. He was the commander of the Arab Legion, and Prince Faisal was voted in a meeting of of the uh, of in Mecca of the what they call the Higher Arab Council. He was voted king of the Arabs just for purposes of negotiating the peace treaty uh, for World War One. Lawrence of Arabia was his translator at the at the peace talks. You can see their pictures. Uh, this is all public document documents. So I'm saying this is the place we have to start, it seems to me, because it's the only thing anyone's ever actually agreed to. Okay. Well, <laughs> you've got history on your slide. I do want to, we'll get to one you later, and then I want to ask Ken and Dave. Oh, Julie, did you have more that you wanted to say? Yeah, I really wanted to, I wanted to ask a couple of more questions. I'm, I'm, I went to a reform synagogue Sunday school from fifth grade. And when I got to college, I was shocked to learn from Middle Eastern um, fellow students um, in Madison that um, about the Darussein massacre, because my teachers never taught me about any such thing. And everybody in the Middle East knew about it and in Asia. So then I buried my head in the sand for 40 years or so got pressured to join a synagogue by a late minister friend of mine in Yonkers and decided before I could do that, I better do some reading and find out what, decide for myself what I thought. So, so it's only a couple of decades ago that I started catching up on reading. And, you know, I try to do it by participating to help my current synagogue organize uh, an Israel reading group. So we choose books and we've read, um, you know, we've read books from all over the political spectrum and very, you know, I've learned a little more history, but I guess I'm asking, I'm asking both of you for a few more books to add to the reading list. I'm, you know, I'm I'm active with Jewish Voice for Peace now. I just want to see the I I you know, since 2014 I've felt as though those bombs I've felt as though those bombs are raining on my head. And I've felt that Judaism has been disgracing itself by the behavior of the Jewish state in terms of the utter lack of humanity and utter um, callousness. I mean, I think. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, I, so yeah. I guess I could be. I, we okay. could. Use, I could use a few more books. I'm really sure. interested in all this. Okay. Thank you, this sure. History so, and how it shapes your thinking about the current situation. Sure. You know, I think Derek Penzler wrote a recent book on Zionism. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to give this more thought. So email me, and I'll. I'll well, I'll put put what you can in the chat. It's a great question. Wendy, if you'll wait just a minute, I, I have a question. Sorry, but I want to ask you, sure. how significant would it be in this particular time to remove Netanyahu? Because if you, if from my point of view, 
I, I do not put it past. This is the JFK theory uh, of Jewish. Uh, you know, uh, Rabin was it uh, actually was murdered in 1995, and it's all been downhill since. And it seemed to me that at that point in time, Rabin might have been able to make peace. And the one beneficiary uh, who many people continue to suspect had a hand in murdering Rabin is Netanyahu. And he is the principal architect, as far as I'm concerned, of this horrible situation. We all know he supported Hamas. We all know that he's facing a prison term. As far as I can tell, the, the war will never end if he's in power. Because if he's in power, he knows if he goes out of power, he's going to go to jail. How much well, I of think, this is personal? And how much yeah. of this will be solved by getting him on trial in the Hague? Well, I don't know what's going to happen with him. I suspect that the same thing. Is that there'll be an inquiry once the shooting stops. Um, but that's the point. It won't survive. stop. But the, the, the point is that you know you have other forces in Israeli society, right? It's been fooling, going further and further and further to the right. The left got decimated, um, you know, more than a decade ago. You have the the demographics of the people that are having three and four and five kids are the ones that tend to be more to the right and more religious. Um, and you know, as hard as it is to perceive. In the current coalition, there are people farther to the right, much more fascist, as horrible as I think Netanyahu is, there are people to his right, and those people are going to disappear. And this was before October 7th. So I don't see him leaving as oh, everything's going to be hunky-dory. I think there are still you know, significant problems. Um, and to you know, get back to the, the last question about how do we look at Israel and the the um, you know the different ways that that's one of the things that, that's playing out now in the debate internally in the Jewish community, and I think that's important to you know to to underscore. There are a lot of us who you know remember sixty seven, remember seventy three, um, and may not like the current government, may be appalled by Netanyahu, but are still you know are, are Zionists, right? There. It's a, mostly a newer generation um, that have a very much like the story that that you know that um, you know was just told, where they went through Jewish day school, uh, get to college, and then all of a sudden hear about something called the occupation, and you know feel betrayed. Why did I go through a Jewish experience? And I'm hearing this from people whose parents and grandparents. Um, were either lay or professional people of major Jewish organizations, they feel betrayed. And betrayed is a very strong emotion. Um, and these are the young you know, Jews who are in Jewish Voice for Peace and Students for Justice in Palestine, and if not now. And what they're saying is, from my understanding of Judaism and what it means to repair the world or how do we treat the stranger, I can't justify Zionism with that. Now, I may disagree with them, but who am I to say that they're not Jewish? And that's what, you know, part of the debate now about pushing definitions of anti-Semitism, one of which I was a lead drafter for, or the one that they're pushing, I was a lead drafter for, 
into law, all these simple, you know, solutions are partly to say to be a Jew means to be supportive of Israel. And to be a Jew does not necessarily, most Jews are supporting of the Israel's right to exist, but not everybody. And, you know, asking Congress and state legislators to decide this internal question really worries me uh, as, uh, you know, a matter of church state and as a matter of the implications for the Jewish community. Wow. Wendy, I'm sorry to interrupt you before. Go ahead, please. Thank you. No, she's this is very uh, Ken, she's one of our co-conveners. Uh, Hi. Hi. We still have forty-seven you. people with us. Uh, it's uh, we're going to keep doing this. I mean, these obviously Ken and David and uh, Julie, wonderful speech and and Lynn. Uh, this is really deep stuff. So feel free, even if you even if you're not Jewish, to jump in here, please. Wendy, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I was pretty compelled to chime in. Just um, I heard you mention. Dobbs a few times and I have um forgive me I'm losing my voice because I've been petitioning <laughs> for a couple of months for <laughs> abortion rights in Florida and um and I have to go through a lot of people because we are uh, a lot of we have a very conservative I'm in Miami um and I'm seeing the just all I can say is like vitriol that we're talking about I've been seeing it and taking kind of the brunt of it um for a couple of months and um also, like, kind of getting a taste of, like, maybe what Black people have experienced in America for a very long time. Um, and I'm just, I'm saying, and I also, I just want to, I feel like I should mention, I dropped out of Hebrew school when I was nine years old, because this, the whole way they were, like, trying to force you to believe in something that they isn't proven, but that everybody else is wrong, and possibly punishment for believing something otherwise. Like, that's where I came from growing up. But now just, I mean, even today I was at a Home Depot parking lot and some guy tells me I'm going to hell and then he starts screaming at me from across the parking lot, calling me a killer and a murderer. Somebody stops to sign the petition because he felt bad for me. Start, the guy starts screaming at this person too. So I know it's a circus. It's it, it's funny as a bird's eye. So what I'm seeing is that, you know, I think that this um hatred comes from a few different possible sources. Like there's fear, there's stupidity, um there's also what i think is and brainwashing is another one but um i think really too it's like people's own discord within themselves and their own subconscious and maybe even a need for control you know they're trying to put laws on other people and so it comes from these places and now so i i was a teenager in the 90s i was born in 1980 and that was a time you know in the 80s and the 90s where there was like a lot of healing happening from the civil rights movement. I mean, we were coming past that. We were post, I mean, not really, but generally, you know, I had a lot of black, like a lot of black friends. Um, my mom wasn't always happy about that. And <laughs> it was like too bad, you know, and um, and just really like the whole effort though was on people coming together. And there was just this, you know, massive, you know, just wait on TV and more black shows, all, all these different things and now I am hearing like the confidence and the arrogance that people will speak the things people will tell me that a woman's body isn't her own um you know and, and just even far beyond things in the name of God like if a woman's health or life is in danger it's God's will and they want to make this the law and this is what you know they're they're spitting out and you wouldn't hear these things five years ago ten years ago they wouldn't have the confidence to say it so I guess what I'm getting at is in your studies and your data in are there times where you saw that things were getting better and some of these divides were able to be successfully healed and 
even like the traumas that create this um this hatred and um this rhetoric like where people could start coming together and can we take lessons from that if if that makes sense thank you for hearing me yeah not, thank you that that's great you know i i don't think that there's you know any sort of magical moment that i can look back there are times where certainly things were better in the sense that i'm old enough to remember during the height of the you know the civil rights movement there were a lot of blacks and jews working together students going down you know on, on summer things uh, freedom summer and so forth so there were times where there were segments that were working together um but you know the i think the the drive well i wrote a book on the 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 Oklahoma City bombing went back to the history of the far right, the Klan, the Minutemen, you know, the Posse Comitatus, and and all that. So it, it's not like there was a pristine period. And the picture that you saw before of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate website that was 86th Street in you know Manhattan, where the Nazi flags were there. So you know there were times, and we had the Ku Klux Klan marching on the streets of Washington. So you know we have a, a, a complicated history. That being said. You know, I think it's the ideas and people's identity and things that get fear, as you were saying, um, get animated. And the idea that, you know, justice is on our side. And we want to look at things very simply um, that, you know, abortion is murder and there's no complicated uh, aspect of it. So therefore, you're a murderer if you're trying to, to support abortion rights. Um, without thinking, gee, you know, um, maybe somebody has a different religious tradition. Maybe somebody has... Um, you know, wants to prioritize having a woman having the same control over her body as a man does. Let's talk about these things. But instead, people go down into their buckets. And part of this, I think, you know, is being, again, it's the ideas, but they're being sort of put on steroids by some of the things we're seeing at the moment. I think, you know, cable news, you know, forget about social media for the moment. Cable news is monetized by um, the problem is not complicated. It's simple. It's their fault and pushing people to further and further and further, you know, uh, see the world that way. When I was a bard in the 70s, uh, there was a little bit of graffiti. I saw said, if I didn't believe it with my own mind, I never would have seen it. And I think it's pushing people further into that, you know, preordained view uh, of the world because other people are now uh, being seen as supporting that. And, you know, my wife... Um, goes crazy when I say I have to turn off CNN and MSNBC and watch Fox News because I have to understand how, you know, put myself, have the intellectual imagination. Somebody's watching it, what they're thinking, how they're thinking. If I'm going to organize, you know, for democracy, and I see some of the folks that are, uh, you know, addicted to that as, as opposing, I have to understand it. And not to demonize them or dehumanize them by any means, but just to understand better. Um, and I think the more we can get you know, to see across the divides, the the better. On Israel Palestine, there, are, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give you one example and then and then shut up about this. I, where I start off the book was a situation at the at the Hate Study Center at Gonzaga, um, where I knew people very well. That that was where the Aryan nations were very big, and um, you know, in the Spokane region, and the you know, the Aryan Nations was shut down by a lawsuit by the Southern Poverty Law Center, but partly because it had been set up by the cooperation of the Jewish community and the peace and justice folks. There was a, a peace and justice group that had a pro-boycott, divestment, and sanction 
web page on his uh, site. Jewish group was calling them anti-Semites. They were talking to each other for eight years. Meanwhile, white supremacist bumper stickers, uh, white supremacist thing on lampposts, a backpack with uh, BBs soaked in rat poison with a remote control put in a Martin Luther King Day parade that thank God didn't go off. And these folks had enough interest to realize, you know, we're not going to solve Israel-Palestine, but we may be able to do something about the guy around the corner in the garage that's planning to do something to one of us. And they needed to get a vocabulary, sat down, did learning, learning, pulled from hate studies first, and then to go into the Israel-Palestine stuff. Four years later, they're still talking to each other. So there are ways when people want to do it as opposed to feel self-righteous and go into their buckets. But I see so many people today on both sides just wanting to be so morally pure and beating up the other side without actually having the capacity to see the humanity of people on the other side. So we're at four o'clock. Steve Caruso, if you don't mind, uh, we still have 47 people with us, for God's sakes. In the in the um, we'll go to four twenty if that's okay, Ken and David, if you can make the, the time to be with us. Uh, Julie Weiner, thank you so much for that narration, by the way, and Lynn, both of you guys are really right on point. The question then becomes: Is there some biological imperative in the human makeup that brings us hate? I mean, it, it's it's an emotion. You know, since I mean, I don't even know if Cain hated Abel, but whatever. But in, in, d- deep in our DNA, there seems to be an uh, uh, unavoidable uh, imperative to hate, right? And um, I don't even know if LSD has been able to transcend that. <laughs> you know, what what do we do well, about that? There, there's. I did a uh, webinar with Robert Sapolsky, who's the biggest, you know, brain about the brain. I'm a brilliant guy, and really, you can put people into MRI machines and see how their hate fires, you know, differently. So it's not preordained who we're going to hate, um, but the capacity, the sort of pre-wired to see in us and them, is very much there. And again, it's it's complicated. It's a co- combination of you know, different other emotions that relate to it, envy, fear, um, you know, uh, disgust, um, you know, and and so forth that relate to how hatred gets manifested and hate gets manifested as attitudes, behaviors, and uh, so it gets certainly into ideologies and theologies. Um, but it is very much, you know, reflective of, of how human beings see the world and, and you know, from the us's and the them's. Well, instead of ideology and, and all that stuff, I mean, they have the, they have located in the brain centers for various alterable right. emotions, right? Love, mm-hmm. hunger, thirst, all that basic stuff. Is there a center in the brain that you could zap and eliminate <laughs> the imperative to hate? Oh, yeah, that, that's way beyond my pay scale. And I, you know, the although it was interesting, you know, that you should mention that I was thinking that in college, my parents were both doctors, and I was fascinated with hate since then. I thought, gee, is there a way you take a pill? So, you know, but then we become less human. Um, so no. I think the, you know, the, the, the question is, how do we manage it? How do we manage it better? Uh, as opposed, and how do we understand it better? As opposed to, you know, how do we uh, make ourselves into something that we're not? Um, you know, 
that, that I would find distressing. God, I don't know, man. I mean, if you could, if you could eliminate the hate center in the brain, uh, and we've had have you know books like uh, Brave New World and, and 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 Soma. Remember Soma, the uh, the the drug that they used in Brave New World. I mean, uh, that would be. I, I'm I bet if something comes to that at some point in time. But, but you'll take uh, out a patent. It's okay. You'll let David. Well, know. Our, the question is: Are human beings hardwired to hate? I mean, look, I, I mentioned yeah. this before in, yeah. in jest, but you don't walk around Columbus, Ohio on the on the weekend of the big day game wearing Michigan stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's just you you don't do that, right? Uh, so uh, and that's about as trivial as it can get, I suppose. So uh anyway, Steve Caruso, who's in Columbus, go ahead. Uh what what did you want to say, Steve? You haven't talked yet. You gotta mute yourself. Mr. Engineer, I can't unmute you here. All there. right, there you go. Yeah. So in Columbus, Ohio, uh, Thanksgiving, I spent at a vegan meetup, and a guy there who lived in a farm in Tennessee, who's now a well-known vegan doctor or whatever, and uh, he's saying that adrenaline pumps out when these guys are running their hate schemes or whatever. And then a new thing that he's discovered is this thing called adenochrome, which is the transition from adrenaline to the next phase. And that is what's prevalent in the body when somebody is following through on this evil deed that they just committed and they kind of boiling over with this adenochrome, which is essentially what seems to be what Netanyahu and these fascists in Israel are prevailing with and you know just like the bush administration in iraq and uh putin in russia they've got this adrenaline they've got this adenochrome and they just keep pushing their the ugliness of the human condition to the forefront and everybody's mind that's all i gotta say well you know then you talk about hitler i mean hitler was uh the whole uh, german army was on meth and uh uh what does that have to do with uh, 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 militarized hate? Uh, Dave Salman, you raised a hand, Dave. You're right, yeah, Steve. I just, I just uh, Harvey, you and I, as both old friends of Gilda Radner, know that all truth is really found in jokes. So I want to I wanna just say, do you know the definition of anti-Semitism? No. Disliking Jews more than is absolutely necessary. <laughs> there you go. But it's uh, to that thing about the brain. There, you know, I mean, uh, and then it's of course I got gone really far afield here, but I can't resist. There's reincarnation. You know what happens when a, a, a Jew who hates Arabs gets reincarnated, uh, obviously as an Arab. I mean, it should be that uh, that reincarnation should be the ultimate payback for ethnic hatred. Uh, I hope that's how the world works, but you never know, right? Um, I don't know. Do, do Muslim, does Islam accept reincarnation? I know Judaism does and Hinduism does, but uh, I don't know about about, about Islam. Um, who hasn't had a hand? Uh, Ellie Parisi, I, I know you want to talk about We've only got 13 minutes left. I know you want to talk about um, the work on uh, Google. Could you do me a favor 
and I will reward you uh, if you'll come back next week. Okay. Yeah, that's so wonderful. Could, Thank you. Yeah, because it would I think it'd be a diversion. And this is a great discussion. My God, we Absolutely. still have 46 people with us. So uh, but I'll give you your own time next week, okay? Great. Thank right. you. Thanks to everyone who's spoken so far. Uh, th thank you. So let's do that. Uh, we're going to go to Justin, Tatanka, and Lynn. And we're almost out of time. So, Justin, go ahead. Oh. No. <laughs> All right. Go ahead. So mine is on the same topic as Ellie's uh, with Dr. Robert Epstein. Uh, but I wanted to give this as far as that um, us versus them perspective. That okay. there's a uh, guy named Corey Doctoro, also a Jew, who has a website for plural society called pluralistic.net. And he talks about his own uh, transformation from getting off of cigarettes and the addiction that was forced by the messaging around him. And he said he actually needed to engage in a battle of wills. That it wasn't enough to say that the cigarettes are going to kill me in 40 years or I'm you know, going to suffer from COPD or other sorts of maladies in the meantime. No, he literally had to say to himself that I am being told that the cigarettes are uh, something that I need. I'm being told that they're healthy for me or at least that they're not that bad. And it is an entire campaign against me. And so to support myself, I have to other the Philip Morris company and others who are trying to manipulate me this way. And so that there is a healthy us versus them, but it's not usually against your neighbor. It's usually against the mind messaging system. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, listen, before we lose track of time, I want to thank Camilla and John uh, for doing our fundraising thing, uh, Mike and, and Wendy and Steve for running the show here. Uh, thank you guys so much. Um, actually, uh, Tatanka, I was going to go to you, but Lissa has not spoken. And um, uh, Lissa, Matras, uh, do you want to jump in and then we'll go to Tatanka and Lynn, please? Um, yes, I was just going to say that so often how we feel about other people. Oh. Wait, you went to mm -hmm. mute somehow. You got muted. Why? There. Lissa? Oh, come on. There. Go ahead. In 1972, I found myself in Tunisia for three weeks because it was raining in Rome. I mean, that's how you made decisions back then. And it was three of the most amazing weeks because my life in Chicago did not include um, much contact with Arab people. Um, and they were just the most welcoming, kind people. And the only bad thing that happened was when we went to Jerba to see the uh, ancient synagogue and not only couldn't I speak to the man, the shamas who was running it, because he didn't speak French, he only spoke Arabic and Hebrew, um, and he only wanted to sell me postcards, whereas most of the Tunisians had just gone out of their way to um, embrace us as people from another land. And so I think one of the main problems for me and my generation 
um, has been the lack of contact with people we see as other. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think that maybe Ken and David could figure out ways to bring people, I mean, it might be too late at this point, but to bring younger people together, um, not necessarily to debate the Middle East, but just to get to know people, to share um, Greek, um, these wonderful fried egg foods that Tunis had a lot of. Um, it's just, you know, a tragedy that we don't know each other. That's all I wanted to say. And thank you to everybody who have, who has said such meaningful things. Well, I'm sure this is one of the very few discussions of this problem where nobody's been screaming at each other. So thank you for that. A, I will say, you know, that guy was telling you postcards. The first Arab that I ever met when I got into Israel and I was got off the train in Haifa wanted to sell me pot. So I think that was a good a good start. Anyway, <laughs> actually, it was hashish, but you know we won't we won't quibble. Um, uh, to uh, Tatanka and Lynn, and then we'll give the last words to David and and uh, and Ken. Yeah, this has been an amazing session, by the way. Thank you so much, both of you, and everybody. Really mind boggling. We still have forty three people with us. So go ahead, Lynn, please. And oh, Tatanka, and then Lynn. Yeah, thank you, Ken, and thank you, David. Thank you, everyone that contributed. I'll tell a little bit about me, and then I have two questions for you, Ken. Um, my whole adult life, well, actually, since I've been young, is pursuing uh, a life of uh, community activism around nonviolence. And I've been uh, constantly challenged by my own anger, right? And there are two experiences that were really helpful, and I just wondered if they're part of what you study. One was by the reevaluation or co-counseling community, where what they would do with different communities, with men and women, straight and gay, black and white, and they did it with Israelis and Palestinians, where they would have two circles, and one group in the middle would just be talking about their own, well, they have a, a, a system of healing. So they would talk about different trauma, different fear, different hurts, just, and the, the role of the people on the outside was simply to listen. And when they're triggered, don't interrupt, just try to stay present, and then they'd reverse it. And there was so much learning of the, of the anguish and trauma of, quote, the other side, that it, it, it just, uh, a lot of the uh, otherness just completely disappeared. The second is the, the spiritual folks, my teachers and yoga and other places that I've admired are the ones that actually remember. I grew up Catholic. They had the thing of heaven and hell, right? Never made sense to me. It was much too boring. Besides my mom, my dad never asked my mom to become Catholic and I'm supposed to pray for her sorry soul. And as far as I'm concerned, she's a saint. So anyway, when I dropped the Catholic church, I fell into reincarnation because it, it was like the gardens in my, we always had. It was like, you know, regenerating a garden out of the compost pile. And um, I had misunderstood a lot of my own history because uh, when I was in, encountering uh, going up the creek where I lived and I'd encounter Native people, all kinds of experience, and I would come home and tell the story, oh, you have such an active imagination. 
Well, it turned out when I started remembering past lives, when I gave myself a gift of, of a decade with Native people and just being more in touch with nature than just the human community, I started remembering all kinds of past lives, and some of them were glorious. But it was at a time after I really learned about the Bush's role with Hitler and funding the Third Reich and all that. And W was in office, and I had so much animus as I used to have toward Reagan, et cetera. And I had this dream about uh, a, a horrendous past life that was mine. And I woke up the next day and I just went, oh, W, you got nothing on me. I've, undone, <laughs> I've outdone you. What it did is it brought kind of a, I don't know, it brought a neutrality. And then I was able to have dreams about being with the elite and knowing what they were going to do before they did it. Cause I was one of them as well as one of the other anyway. So my okay. second part of the question is there's historical trauma, but it's not just within my life. Instead of seeing my life as a book from, from conception to my present time, it became one page and a whole tome of many past lives and the roles we played. So my other question is any exploration around that when in the healing process. Here. Interesting. Interesting idea. Mm -hmm. well, can we let me get Lynn in and then we'll finish with David okay. again if that's okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Lynn, please, and then we'll go to Dave and Ken and, and let Steve go home. Lynn Lynn Fireman. Yes. Oh. Um I thought I would be called last and I thought I would inject a, a note of humor. Well go um, ahead please. A lot of this you know, a lot of what we're dealing with is about what Tatanka was talking about, the the ideas that are inculcated into us when we're children and the ideas that are not allowed for us to entertain when we're children. You know, the old song from South Pacific, you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. So I thought I would just quote uh regarding religion, uh, first from Voltaire, the philosopher, he said, if creator has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. Ah, that's good. And um, then of course the immortal George Carlin, uh, religion easily has the best story of all time. Think about it, religion has convince people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of the day. And the invisible man has a list of 10 specific things he doesn't want you to do. And if you do any of those things, he will send you to a special place <laughs> of burning and fire and smoke and torture and anguish for you to live forever and suffer and burn and scream until the end of time. But he loves you. Oh, yes. He loves you. He loves you, and he needs money. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Robin Williams once said when he was portraying an evangel evangelical on TV, the word audit does not appear in the Bible. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Wow, that was great, Lynn. Thank you. All right, we're really down to the wire. Uh, Dave and then Ken will give you the wrap-up. Dave, no, uh, thank I you. The floor to you, Ken. Thank you all for inviting me. Uh, just one, I guess, comment from the, you know, not the 
you know, the last comment, but the uh, one before that, about, you know, thinking about hate, hate, the opposite is not love, it's empathy. And that's part of what I think, you know, we're talking about with these different exercises and stuff. Um, there's one thing that, you know, we have a lot of different programs we're trying to push at, at the center. One thing, which I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to do, but I'll mention it very briefly. I would love to at some point, based on some social psychological um, principles from some old studies, find a way to have a, you know, a summer program, six weeks or so, take kids that are just finishing high school before they go off to college and meet people from different backgrounds. Take a Jewish kid from New York and a black kid from Chicago and a, a Hispanic kid from LA and, you know, send them with some structure to go to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and do a project together for Habitat for Humanity or something. Have people, there's some some data that shows if you give people some overarching sense of purpose that goes across groups, they're working together for a common purpose, it'll potentially reduce prejudice. So I'd love to see that type of thing worked out in other types of programs. But the empathy, the pushing of empathy to me is the key, and not only in Israel, but here too. Wow, thank you so much. I hope you will come back with us, uh, Dave. Thank sure. you. Guys, uh, thank you, John and Camilla, <clears throat> everybody. This was an amazing session, um, and it will be uh, archived if you want to send it. And my, uh, to finish, uh, Ken, you're testifying in front of a congressional hearing on. No, I have. I, no, no, that was that was a, a little while ago. It was one that the one that I was, um, you know, just with the college president stuff. Uh, they only had one slot, and I suggested that Pam take it for the Democrats. So, um, but I've testified a number of times, and I'm sure I will again. Um, well, we'll are interested. And hopefully, you'll come back and join us in 2024. Yeah. Thank you uh, uh, so much, uh, uh, Steve Caruso, for sticking with us, Mike, everybody, and uh, thank you. Harvey. Better. We'll see you. Uh, next, we're going to meet next week, and then the two weeks after our Christmas and New Year's. So we won't do that, but we will meet next week again. Same time, same place. Thank you guys, everybody. And no nukes. <laughs>